0: The question that I'm thinking the most about right now is how can we truly understand how the brain is computing the mind? Over the last hundred years, neuroscience has made a lot of progress. We've learned that there are neurons in the brain. We've learned a lot about psychology. But connecting those two worlds, understanding how these computational circuits in the brain actually in coordinated fashion are generating decisions and thoughts and feelings and sensations, that link remains very elusive. And so, over the last decade, my group at MIT has been working on technology, ways of seeing the brain, ways of controlling brain circuits, ways of trying to map the molecules of the brain. And at this point, what I'm trying to figure out is what do we do next? How do we actually start to use these maps, use these dynamical observations and perturbations to link the computations that these circuits make and things like thoughts and feelings and maybe even consciousness? Well. There are a couple of things that I think we can do. One idea is simply to go get the data. Now, a lot of people have the opposite point of view. You want to have a, an idea about how the brain computes, a concept of how the mind is actually generating thoughts and feelings and so forth. Uh, Marvin Minsky, for example, um, is very fond of thinking about how um, you know sort of intelligence and artificial intelligence can be. Uh, arrived at through uh, through sheer thinking about it. On the other hand, if you look at, and it's always dangerous to make analogies and meta- metaphors like this, but if you look at other problems in biology, like what is life, and you know how do species evolve, and so forth, people forget that there are huge amounts, centuries sometimes, but at least decades, of data that was collected before those theories emerged. Darwin roamed the Earth looking at species, looking at all sorts of stuff, until he wrote the giant tome on the origins of species. Um, Before people started to try to hone in on what life is, there was the tool development phase. People invented the microscope. People started looking at cells and watching them divide and so forth. And without those data, it'd be very hard to know that there were cells at all, that there were these tiny little building blocks, each of which was a self-compartmentalized you know, uh, an autonomous building block of life. And so I think the approach that I would like to take is to go get the data. Let's see how the cells in the brain actually com- communicate with each other. Let's see how these networks actually take sensation and combine that information with feelings and memories and so forth to generate the outputs, decisions and thoughts and movements and so forth. And then one of two possibilities will emerge. One will be look patterns can be found motifs can be mined you can really start to see sense in this morass of data the second might be that it's incomprehensible that the brain is this enormous bag of tricks and while you can simulate it brute force in a computer it's very hard to extract you know simpler representations from those data sets now i think in some ways it has to be the former because it's strange that we can predict our behaviors right People, you know, walk through a city, they communicate, they see things, they, uh, you know, there's sort of commonalities in the human experience. So that's a clue. That's a clue that it's not an arbitrary morass of complexity that we're not going to ever make sense of. Of course, being a pessimist, we should still always Mm -hmm. uh, hold hold open the possibility that it will be incomprehensible. But the fact that, you know, we can talk in language, that we see... Um, and design shapes, and that people can experience pleasure in common, that suggests that there's some convergence, that it's not going to be infinitely complex, and that we will be able to make sense of it. Well, I I think that biology and brain science and uh, these sciences are not fundamental sciences in the sense that physics is. So in physics, you know, there are particles and there are forces, and you could write down a very short list of those things. But if you're thinking about the brain, and the brain is made out of these cells called neurons, and the neurons have all these molecules that generate their electrical functions and their chemical exchanges of information. Those are encoded for by the genome. And so in the genome we have, you know, depending on who you ask, twenty to thirty thousand odd genes, and those genes produce you know gene products like proteins, and those proteins generate the electrical potentials of neurons, and they specify at least some parts of the wiring. And so the way that I look at it is that we're going to want to understand the brain in terms of these fundamental building blocks. And we can always try to to ignore some detail, you know, this concept of the abstraction layer. Can we ignore everything below a certain level of description and just focus on the higher level concepts? But, you know, modern neuroscience is now, what, almost 130 years old since the neuron was discovered. And... So far, the attempts to ignore below certain levels of description have not yielded universally accepted and explanatory theories of how our brains are computing our thoughts or feelings or movements. So the way that we approach things is pretty radically different from the past. The premise that I launched my research group at MIT on was that we needed new technology. The reason people are shying away from these very, very detailed Measurements of brain function, getting the deep data, was because we didn't have the tools. And if you look at the history of science, you need the tools first, and then you get the data, and then you can make the theory. If you make theory with no technology, um, uh, it's very, very difficult to know that you've really solved it. You know, before Newton's laws, there were lots of people like Kepler and Galileo and all sorts of people who were watching the planets, right? And they had decades and decades of data And so why why don't we have that for the brain? So we need things for the brain, like the telescope and the microscope. And now we need to collect the data, ground truth data, if you will, where we really can see all those cells and those molecules in action. And then I think we're going to see a renaissance in our ability to think of and learn about the brain at a very detailed level, but to extract true insight from these data sets. Let's think about for a second this hypothesis that biology is not a fundamental science. So if you think about books like The Structure of Scientific Revolutions or other attempts to explain the path of science, you often have have these models. Here's my hypothesis. Somebody comes along and disproves it, and if it's a big enough disproof, you get a revolution. But let's think about biology. Suppose I want to figure out how a gene in the genome relates to an emergent property like intelligence or uh, behavior or a disease like Alzheimer's disease. There's so many genes in the genome most hypotheses are probably wrong, just by chance, right? What are the chance that you got the exact gene that's most important for something? And even if you did, how do you know what other genes modulate it? So it's an incredibly complicated network. If you start thinking about how different genes of the genome, how their products interact to generate functions in cells or in neurons or in networks, it's a huge combinatorial explosion. And so most hypotheses about what a gene is doing, or especially what a network of genes is doing, much less a network of cells in the brain, they're going to be incorrect. And so that's why I think it's so important to get these ground truth descriptions of the brain. Why can't we map the circuits and see how the molecules are configured and turn on or off different cells in the brain and see how they interact? And once we have those maps, we can make much better hypotheses. I don't think the maps of the brain equal the understanding of the brain, but I do think the maps of the brain can help us make hypotheses and make them less assumption-prone, make them less likely to be wrong. Well, one thing that I hope the circuit description of the brain will help us understand about humanity is we know from psychology there are countless unconscious processes that happen. One of the most famous such experiments is um, you can find regions of the brain, or even single cells in the brain, that will be active even seconds before people feel like they're making a consciously willed decision. So that leads to what you might maybe uh, slightly jokingly say, you know, we have free will, but we're not conscious of it, right? Our brains are computing what we're going to do. And then we're conscious after the fact is one interpretation of these studies. What it suggests though, is that if we peek under the hood, if we really look at what the brain is computing, we might find evidence for the implementation or the mechanisms of feelings and thoughts and decisions that are completely inaccessible if we only look at behavior, or if we only look at the kinds of things that 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 people do. Whereas if you find evidence that something that you're about to do, something you're about to consciously decide, your brain already has that information in advance. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what's generating that information? Maybe there are free will circuits, quote unquote, in the brain that are generating these decisions. And we know all sorts of other things that occur, feelings that our brains are generating, and we have no idea about what's actually causing them. You know, very famous examples where somebody who has an injury to a part of their brain that's responsible for conscious vision, but you tell them when you see something, I want you to have a certain feeling, or when you see something, I want you to, you know, imagine a certain kind of outcome. And people will have that occur, even though they're not consciously aware of what they're seeing. So... There's so much processing that, we're, we, that we have no access to, and yet it's so essential to the human condition for feelings and decisions and thoughts. And if we can get access to the circuits that generate them, that might be the fastest route to understanding those aspects of the human condition. Well, I've been thinking a lot over the last decade primarily about the technology to help us figure out what we need to understand about the brain in terms of circuits and how they work together. But now that those tools are maturing, I'm thinking a lot about how do we use these tools to really understand what we all care about, right? So up till now, we've mostly been giving our tools out to other neuroscientists to use. We've been focusing very much on technology invention. And other groups have been discovering really profound things about the brain. I'll just give you a couple examples. There's a group at Caltech and they use one of our technologies, a technology that makes neurons activatable by pulses of light. and They put these molecules into neurons deep, deep in the brain. And now when you shine light, those neurons are electrically active, just like when they're normally being used. They found that there are neurons deep in the brain that trigger aggression or violence in mice. So they would activate these neurons, and the mice would attack whatever was next to them, even if it was just a rubber glove. And so I find it fascinating to think about something as ethically charged, as essential to you know, uh, the human condition as involved with our justice system and all sorts of stuff as violence, you can find a very small cluster of neurons that when they're activated are sufficient to trigger an act of aggression or violence. So of course, now the big question is what neurons connect to those, right? Are they violence detectors? Oh, here's the set of stimuli that makes this mouse decide, oh, I should go attack this thing next to me, even if it's just a glove. And then of course, where do these neurons project? What are they driving? Are they driving an emotion? And downstream of that emotion comes the violent act? Or are they just driving a motor command? Go attack the glove next to you. So for the first time, you can really start to activate very specific sets of cells deep in the brain and have them trigger an observable, observable behavior, but you can also ask, what are these cells getting? What are these cells sending messages to and looking at the entire flow of information? Uh, I'll give you another example that I think is really fascinating, which is one of my colleagues at MIT, um, Susumu Tonagawa. They do something really interesting. They train mice on a learning task. And now certain neurons in the brain become activatable by light. They use some genetic tricks to do that. Now what happens is those mice can be doing something else much later. They shine light on the brain. And those neurons, the ones that had been activated earlier when they were learning, they get reactivated. And the mice make a memory recall. It's like they were there in the earlier place and time. And so that's really interesting, because for the first time, they can show that you can cause the recall of a specific memory. And now they're doing all sorts of interesting things. So for example, you can activate those cells again. And let's say that's a happy memory. Let's say it's associated with pleasure or reward. They've shown that that can have antidepressant effects. That you can have an animal recall a memory when you shine light on certain neurons. Now the memory that is recalled triggers happy emotions. This is how they interpret it. And that can actually counteract other stressors or other things that make the animal normally feel not so good. So literally hundreds and hundreds of groups are using this technology that we developed for activating neurons with light to trigger things that are of you know very clinical and maybe even sometimes philosophical, you could argue, interest. Well, I studied chemistry and electrical engineering and physics in college and uh, decided that I really cared to understand the brain. Um, to me, that was the big unknown. You now, this will seem kind of cheesy, but I started thinking about how our brains understand the universe. And the universe, of course, gives us things like the laws of physics, upon which are built chemistry and biology, upon which is built our brain. And so it's kind of a loop. And so I was trying to think about what to do in a career. I thought, what's the weak point in the loop? And it seemed like the brain was really very unknown. Um, I was very impressed by people who would go build technology to tackle really big problems. Um, You know, sometimes very simple technology. Uh, You know, all the chemists in the 1700s and 1800s who built ways of looking at pressure and volume and stoichiometry and so forth. Without that, it's inconceivable that we would have, you know, things like the periodic table of the elements and quantum mechanics and so forth. So to me, what really stuck out in my mind was you need to have that technological era. And that then gives you the data that you really want that then yields the most parsimonious and elegant representations of knowledge. And for neuroscience, it seemed like we had never gone through that technological era. There were bits and pieces, don't get me wrong, like electrodes and the MRI scanner but never a concerted effort to be able to map everything, record all the dynamics, and to control everything. And that's what I really wanted to do. At the time I started graduate school at Stanford, Um, I went around telling everybody I wanted to build technologies for the brain and to bring the physical sciences into neuroscience. And a lot of people thought it was a bad idea, frankly. And I think the reason why was at the time, many people who are physicists and inventors were trying to build tools for studying the brain. But they were thinking forwards from what was fun for them to do and not backwards from the really deep mysteries of the brain and so the key insight that i got during graduate school was if you don't think backwards from the big mysteries of the brain and you only think forwards from what you find fun in physics the technologies you built might not be that important they might not solve a big problem and so that's what i really learned was look we have to take the brain at face value we have to accept its complexity work backwards from that, and survey all the areas of science and engineering in order to build those tools. So during the first decade that I've been a professor at MIT, we've mostly been building tools. We built tools for controlling the brain, tools for mapping the detailed molecular and circuit structure of the brain, and tools for watching the brain in action. And right now, I think we're at a turning point. We're ready to start actually deploying these tools systematically and at scale. Don't get me wrong. The tools still need, I think, improvements to be equal to the challenge of studying the brain. But for small organisms like worms and flies and fish, or for small parts of mammalian brains, I think we're ready to start mapping them and trying to understand how they're computing. The work progresses through primarily philanthropic as well as government grant funding. Um, we've been very lucky that uh, there's been a bit of an increase in people interesting and funding high-risk, high-reward things. Um, that's one reason why I'm at the MIT Media Lab, actually. And you might ask, why is a neuroscience professor, you know, at, in the School of Architecture at MIT? Why? You know, so as we are discussing earlier, the neuroscientists long had a deep distrust of technology. The technologies often didn't work. The brain was so complicated that the, 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 the tools could only solve toy problems. When I was looking for a professor job, uh, the search for a job was hit or miss. Um, My collaborator, Carl Deisseroth, and I had already published a paper showing we could activate neurons with light, a technology um, that we've called ever since optogenetics. Opto for light and genetics because it's a, a gene that we borrow from actually a plant to make the neurons light sensitive. But a lot of people at the time were still very deeply skeptical. Is this the real deal? Or is this yet more not-quite-working technology? That'll be a footnote. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, I actually went to the Media Lab to complain about how political and complicated academia was. And I was very lucky. They were wrapping up a failed job search, and they said, why don't you come here? And so I went, and that's where we've been incubating a lot of neurotechnology there since then. When I first got to the Media Lab, I think a lot of people were deeply puzzled about what I would do there. Was I going to switch into, you know, quote unquote, classical publicly perceived media lab technology? Like, you know, would I develop ways of having cell phones, diagnose mental illness or other things like that? Um, But I really wanted to get to the ground truth of the brain. And so in some ways, the media lab was a perfect place to start. We could incubate these ideas, these tools out of the cold light of day until they were good enough that neuroscientists could see their value. And that took several years. It was about a three year period until, um, you know, this started to get mainstream acceptance. And then there was another three year period where people said, wow, how do we get more technology? And that led to initiatives like the Obama Brain Initiative, which is an attempt to get widespread technology development throughout neuroscience. So the Brain Initiative started at the instigation of uh, the Kavli Foundation. They were hosting a series of brainstorms about what nanoscientists and neuroscientists could do together. And Paul Olavisatos and George Church and Rafa Eusta and many people at that border um, were at these early sessions. And in late 2012, I was invited to one of these sessions where um, many inventors were invited. And we started talking about, well, you know what? Maybe brain activity mapping is great and all, but the technologies might be much more broad than that you might need more than just maps. You might need ways to control the brain, ways to rewire the brain. And so that was an interesting turning point because um, it went from from activity mapping to broadly technology. And four or five months later, Obama announced this BRAIN initiative, um, which somewhat recursively stands for um, Brain Research for Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. And they are now devoting tens to hundreds of millions of dollars a year, depending upon which year, to try to get more technology made to help understand the brain. Well, the Brain Initiative now is run by different government agencies. They have their own priorities. So, for example, DARPA is very interested in short-term human prosthetics, for example. No surprise there. Um, The National Science Foundation is interested in more basic science and so forth. And so the different agencies have their own agendas now. Yes, IARPA is involved. Um, They are trying to do a hard push for short-term mammalian brain circuit mapping based upon existing technology, um, and so we're a small part of that On more on the technology development side. I think most of the money is on the application side, but we have some new tools that we think can be very, very helpful. Companies are great if you can work hard and be smart and solve the problem, but if you're ta- tackling something like the brain, or I think the biggest challenges in biology in general, A lot of it's serendipity. A lot of it's the chance connections, when you bring multiple fields together, when you connect the dots, when you actually kind of engineer the serendipity and make something truly unpredictable. And I think that's hard to do if you have closed doors. I think that's hard to do if you don't allow open, free collaboration. And so our group is is very big. I think we're the second biggest research group at all of MIT. But we work with probably about 100 groups, people who are genomics experts and chemistry experts and people making nanodiamonds and all sorts of stuff. And the reason is the brain is such a mess, it's so complicated, we don't know for sure which technologies and which strategies and which ideas are going to be the very best. And so we need to sort of combinatorially collaborate in order to guarantee or at least maximize the probability that we're going to solve the problem. And so I actually think a lot about hybrid institutional designs. You want to have academia for that serendipitous ability to connect dots and collaborate. And you want companies when it's time to push hard and just get the thing done and scale up and get it out the door. Um, And what I would hope to engineer in the coming maybe decade or so are hybrid institutions where we can actually have people go back and forth because you might need to have an idea that will go back and forth a bit until it matures. I'll give you an example. We're building new kinds of microscopes and new kinds of nanotechnologies to record huge amounts of data from the brain i mean one of our collaborators was estimating that you know soon some of these devices we're making might need some significant fraction of the bandwidth of the entire internet in order to record all the brain data that we might be getting at some point so now we, we need some electronics right we need electronics to store all the data and computers to analyze the data but that's an industrial thing you know it's much easier to get that done in a company than in academia, because people in industry can turn the crank and make incredible computers. And so we started a collaboration. A small startup here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, does these computers with us. And now we're working on the nanotechnologies. And that fusion of two different institutional designs allows us to rapidly move faster than companies alone or academics alone. And so I think these new hybrid models are going to be essential to balance the need for luck and the need for scalability. So the thing that I'm really excited about is also um, how do we get rid of the risk in biology and medicine? So most medicines, most strategies for treating patients, they're found in large part by luck. How do we get rid of the risk? And I think that, again, you know, we talked a bit about how there are fundamental sciences like physics, and then you have sort of higher order sciences like biology. I think medicine also might have different scientific methods for different kinds of disease. So um, bacteria and viruses, we've made huge inroads against because of antibiotics, because of vaccines. Why have the, these been so successful? It's because we're trying to help our body fight a an invader, right? But if you look at the big diseases, the ones that nobody has any clue what to do about, they are brain disorders, a lot of cancers autoimmune conditions. You know, these are diseases where it's our body fighting ourselves, and that's much harder because you can't just give a drug and it wipes out the foreign invader because the foreign invader is you. And so how do we understand how to de-risk the tough parts of medicine? And so I think we kind of have to think about drug development and therapeutic development from a different point of view. The models that give us new antibiotics and new vaccines and so forth might not be quite right for Subtly shifting the activity levels of certain circuits in the brain, for subtly tuning the immune system to fight off a cancer, but not so much that you're going to cause an autoimmune attack, right? And so one thought is well, if it's your body fighting yourself, what you really want is very, very, very deep knowledge about the building blocks of those cells and how they're configured in the body. And so the basic premises behind ground truthing. The understanding of the brain might be also right what we need in order to de-risk medicine in order to really understand how cells and organs and systems go awry in these intractable disorders so that's something i've been thinking a lot about recently as well how do we de-risk the goal and methodology and path towards curing diseases you know there was just a, a study released about how Taking a drug from idea to market can cost two and a half billion dollars now. And if you look at the really tough diseases like brain diseases, like cancers and so forth, the failure rate to be approved for human use is over 90%. So this got me thinking, well, maybe this is the same kind of intellectual problem as why we don't understand how brain circuits compute thoughts and feelings. We have these large 3D systems, whether it's a brain circuit or a cancer or the immune system, and knowing how to tweak those cells to make them do the right thing means finding the really subtle differences that make those cells different from the normal cells in our body. And so um, I've been thinking a lot about how we could try to take these tools that we've been developing for mapping the brain, for controlling the brain, for watching the brain in action and applying it to the rest of medicine. Well, I can tell you about a, cl- uh, a collaboration that we have with, with George Church. George's group, for about 15 years now, has been trying to work on a technology called in-situ sequencing. And what that means is, can you sequence the genetic code and also the ex- expressed genes, the recipes of cells, right there inside the cells? Now, why is that important? It's important because if you just sequence the genome or you sequence gene expression patterns after grinding up all the cells, you don't know where those cells are in three-dimensional space. So if you're studying a brain circuit, and here's how information's flowing from sensation into memory regions towards, you know, motor areas. You've lost all the three dimensionality of the circuit. You just have ground up the brain into a soup, right? Or for a tumor, we know that there are cells that are by the blood vessels. There are stem cells. There are metastasizing cells. If you just grind up the tumor and sequence the nucleic acids, you again have lost the three dimensional picture. So, um, a couple years ago, George's group published a paper where they could actually take cells in a dish and sequence the expressed genes. That is, you know, you have DNA in the nucleus that expresses in terms of RNA, which is the recipe of that cell. And the RNA then drives all the downstream production of proteins and other biomolecules. So the RNA is sort of in between the genome and the mature phenotype of the cell. It's kind of the recipe. And George's group was sequencing the RNA. So I thought that was amazing. You could read out the recipe of a cell. Now, there was a tricky part. It didn't work well in large 3D structures, like brain circuits or tumors. And so our group had been developing a way of taking brain circuits and tumors and other complex tissues and physically expanding them to make them bigger. So what we do to make the brain or a tumor bigger is we take a piece of brain tissue and we chemically synthesize throughout the cells, in between the molecules, around the molecules, in that piece of brain, a web of a polymer that's very similar to the stuff in baby diapers. And then when we add water, the polymer swells and pushes all the molecules apart. And so it becomes big enough that you can see it, even using cheap optics. You know, one of my dreams is you could take a bacterium or a virus and expand it until you could take a picture on a cell phone. Imagine how that could help with diagnostics, right? You could find out what infection somebody has just by making it bigger, take a picture, and you're done. We started talking with George. What if we can take our sample and expand it, and then run their in-situ sequencing method? Because sequencing, of course, is really complicated. You need room around the molecules to sequence them. And so this is very exciting to me. If we can take stuff and expand it, and then use George's technology to read out the recipes of the cells, we can really map the structure of life in a way. We can really see how all the cells look in a complex brain circuit or in a tumor or in an organ that's undergoing autoimmune attack, like in type 1 diabetes. So that's one of the things that excites me, excites me most is this in situ sequencing concept. If we can apply it to large 3D structures and tissues, we might be able to really map the fundamental building blocks of life. Our current collaboration uh, with George's group has been focused very much on Um, just small pieces of tissue that we have, mouse brains, probably other model organisms in use in neuroscience. But but we know that if they work in those systems, they'll probably work in human tissues as well. So imagine we get a cancer biopsy from somebody. We use our group's technology to expand it physically, making everything big enough to see. And then we can go in and use George's in-situ sequencing technology to read out the molecular composition. When we first Published the idea of expanding something. A lot of people were very skeptical about it, about it. It's sort of a very unconventional way of doing things. Um, so to give in, to convince people that it works, we went down two lines of reasoning. The first was a design method. When we synthesize the baby diaper like polymers inside the cells, we would anchor through molecular bonds specific molecules to the polymer and then we would wipe out all the web, all the rest. We can use enzymes and so forth to chop up the rest. And so that way, when we expand the polymer, our molecules that we care about are anchored and move apart, but the rest of the structure has been destroyed or chopped up so that, so that it does not impede the expansion. So that's a key design element. One way to think of this is chemistry is a way of doing fabrication massively in parallel. So suppose that I want to see two things that are close together like my two hands here but of course lenses cannot see very very small things right? thanks to diffraction so what if we took my two hands and anchored them to these expandable polymers and then destroyed everything else, you know, there, might, there might be a lot of junk here we don't care about we add water and the polymer swells moving my hands along with it until they're far apart enough that we can see the gap between them so that's the core idea of what we call expansion microscopy where we take the molecules in a cell, or the molecules in a tissue, a brain circuit, or a tumor, and we anchor those molecules to a swellable polymer. When we add water, the molecules we care about, the ones we've anchored, that we've nailed to the polymer, as it were, have moved apart until they're far apart enough that we can see them using cheap, scalable, and easily deployed optics, like you could find on an inexpensive microscope or even a webcam. So after we published our paper on expanding tissues, a lot of people started to apply them. For example, suppose you wanted to figure out um, how the cells are configured in a a cancer biopsy. You can take the sample, and if you look at it under a microscope, you can't really see the fine structures. But if you blow it up and make it bigger, maybe you could see the shape of the genome. Maybe, Maybe you could see that one cell is extending a tiny tendril, too tiny to see through other means. And maybe that's the beginning of metastasis. So there's a, a lot of people who are trying to use our technology now for seeing things that you just can't see any other way. And we're finding a lot of interest, not just from brain scientists, because now you have a way of mapping brain circuits with nanoscale precision in 3D, but also from other, you know, sort of brain-like problems, tumors and, you know, organs and development and so forth, where you want to look at a 3D structure, but with nanoscale precision. We've spun out a small company to try to make kits and maybe provide this as a service um, so that people can use this widely. Of course, we've also put all the recipes on the internet so people can download them, and hundreds and hundreds of groups have already started to, to play with these kinds of tools. But basically, we want to make the invisible visible. And it's very hard to see a 3D structure like a circuit that might store a memory or a circuit in the brain that might be processing an emotion with the nanoscale resolution that you need to see neural connections and the molecules that make neurons do what they do. The fundamental limit on how fine we can see things is related to a technical parameter called the mesh size. That's basically the spacing between the polymer chains. We think that the spacing between the polymer chains is about a couple nanometers. That is around the same size as a biomolecule. And so if we can push all the molecules away from each other very evenly It's kind of like drawing a picture on a balloon and blowing it up. You might be able to see all the individual particles and building blocks of life. But you know what? We have to really validate the technology down to that level of resolution. So far, we've validated it down to about a factor of 10 bigger than that, an order of magnitude. But if we can get down to single molecule resolution, you could really try to map the building blocks of living systems. We haven't gotten there yet. Well, I've been amazed at how fast neurotechnology has started to move. 10 years ago, we had relatively few tools for looking at and controlling the brain. And now, 10 years later, we have our optogenetic tools for controlling brain circuits, this expansion method for mapping the fine circuitry, and also we've we've developed 3D imaging methods that basically work the way that our eyes work to reconstruct 3D images of brain high-speed electrical dynamics. In the coming 15 years, I think two things are going to happen, and a third thing might happen. One thing that I think will happen is that our ability to map the fine details of neural circuits and see high-speed dynamics and control it will probably be perfected. That might happen as soon as five years from now, but definitely within 15 years, I would predict that. The second thing is I think we're going to have some detailed enough maps of small neural circuits that maybe we could even make computational models of their operation. So for example, there's a small worm called C. elegans that has 302 neurons. Maybe we can map all of them and their molecules and their dynamics, and perhaps we can make a computational model of that worm. Or maybe um, a, a slightly larger brain, You know, the larval, uh, the larval zebrafish has 100,000 neurons. Mice have 100 million, ballpark, and humans have about 100 billion. So you can see there's some multi-stage logarithmic jumps there that we have to make. The speculative thing, I think, is that we might have some tools that might let us look at human brain functions much, much more accurately. So right now, we have so few tools for looking at the human brain. There's functional functional MRI, which lets you kind of look at blood flow that is downstream of brain activity, but it's very indirect and it's very crude. The time resolution is thousands of times slower than brain activity, and the spatial resolution Each little block that you see in these brain scans contains tens to hundreds of thousands of neurons. And we know that even nearby nearby neurons can be doing completely different things. So what we most need, I would say, right now is a method for imaging and controlling human brain circuits with single-cell, single-electrical pulse precision. And... uh, I think the jury's out on how that could happen. I mean, there's lots of brainstorming. I don't think I've seen um, any technology generated so far that can provably do it, although there's lots of interesting speculation. And so that's something I would love to see happen. And we've started to work on some ideas that might allow you to do it. Well, there's a lot of speculation about whether there are quantum effects that are necessary for brain computations. Um, At body temperature, it's very likely that quantum effects, if any, are going to be very, very short-lived, maybe much shorter than the kinds of computations that are happening in the brain. So it's quite possible that if such effects actually are important, we would need far more, more powerful tools to see them. Um, or perhaps uh, you can explain uh, all the biophysics of neurons known to date, um, for the most part, with completely classical models. On the other hand, the thing that I loved about working on the quantum computation project, um, this is with Neil Gershenfeld back in the day, was this sort of greater philosophy of how information and physics are linked. And so there are all these theories um, of sort of fundamental physical principles of computation. There's even the phrase, it from bit, where you know, people talk about the fundamental thermodynamic limits of how information processing occurs in physical systems. For example, there's so many bits associated with a black hole. There's based upon temperature, a fundamental amount of information that might be encoded in a specific transition. Um, I think the brain for the most part is operating because it's at body temperature and and all that, far, far above those physical um, fundamental limits in terms of information processing. On one level, the most parsimonious models of the brain are analog because we know that there are different amounts of transmitters and so forth being released at synapses. We know that the electrical pulses that neurons compute can vary in in their height and in their duration. Of course, if you dig deep enough, you could say, well, you could just count the neurotransmitters. You could count the ions and it becomes digital again, but that's a much more detail level of description that might not be the most parsimonious level. We had to count and localize every single sodium ion and potassium ion and chloride ion. Um, hopefully, we don't have to go that far. But, you know, if we need to, um, we would probably have to build new technologies to do that. Yeah, so um, my co-inventor, Carl Dyseroth and I both won breakthrough prizes in life sciences for our work together on optogenetics, this technology where we put molecules that are light sensitive into neurons and then we can make them activatable or silenceable with pulses of light. Our groups have sent these molecules out to literally thousands of basic as well as clinically interested neuroscientists and people are studying very basic science questions like how is a smell represented in the brain, but they're also trying to answer clinically relevant questions like where should you deactivate brain cells to shut down an epileptic seizure. So. I'll give you an example of the latter, since there is a lot of disease interest. You know, people, people have been trying to shut down the overexcitable cells during seizures for literally decades. But it's so difficult because which part of the brain and which cells and which projections? It's such a big mess, right? The brain. So a group at UC Irvine has been using our technologies to try to turn off different brain cells or even to turn on different brain cells. And what they're finding is that some cells, if you activate them, can shut down a seizure in a mouse model, but still you know who would have thought that activating a certain kind of cell would be enough to terminate a seizure? Now you know there's very very you, there's no other way to really test that, right because how do you turn on just one kind of cell? So what they did was um, there are a certain class of cell called interneurons, and they tend to shut down other cell types in the brain. And so what this group did is they took a molecule um, that we had uh, first put into neurons about a decade ago, a molecule that, kind of like a solar panel, when you shine light on it, will drive electricity into the neuron. They delivered the gene for this molecule so that it it would only be on in those interneurons. None of the other cells nearby, just the interneurons. And then when they shine light, these interneurons would shut down their neighboring cells and they showed you could terminate a seizure in a mouse model of epilepsy. And so that's really interesting because now if you could build a drug that would drive those cells, maybe that would be a new way of treating seizures. Or you could try to directly use light to activate, to activate those cells and build a sort of prosthetic that would be implanted in the brain and activate those cells near a seizure focus, for example. And so I think people are exploring both ideas. Could you use our optogenetic tools to turn on and off different cell types in the brain to find better targets, but then, you know, treat those targets with drugs? Or could you use light to activate cells and directly sculpt their activity in real time in a human patient? The latter, of course, is much higher risk, but it's fun to think about for sure. And there are a couple companies that are actually trying to do that now. Well, when we were talking about the Breakthrough Prize, I was starting to think about how... how medicine has been kind of trying to do... The little speech I gave at the Breakthrough Prize, which they only give you 30 seconds, but I thought about it for several weeks because I feel like there's such a push to cure things, a push to find treatments. But in some ways, by forcing it to go too fast, we might miss the serendipitous insights that are much more powerful. I'll give you an example. You know, 1927... Um, The Nobel Prize in medicine was given to this guy who came up with a treatment for dementia. So what this person did is he would take people with dementia and he would deliberately give them malaria. Remember, this is the greatest idea of its time, right? Malaria causes a very high fever. At the time, dementia was often caused by syphilis. And so the high fever of malaria would kill the parasite that causes syphilis. Now, in 1928, one year later, antibiotics started to come online. And of course, antibiotics have been a huge hit, and syphilis related dementia is pretty, you know, almost unheard of nowadays, right? So, the rush to get a short-term treatment, I worry, can sometimes miss out or cause people to misdirect their attention from getting down to the ground truth mechanisms of knowing what's going on. It's almost like you know, people often talk about, we're doing all this incremental stuff. We should do more moonshots, right? And I worry that medicine does too many moonshots. I mean, almost everything we do in medicine is a moonshot. Because we don't know for sure if it's going to work, right? So people forget, right? When, you, when they landed on the moon, they already had several hundred years of, okay, calculus, so they have the math, physics, so they know Newton's laws, aerodynamics, you know how to fly, rocketry, people were launching rockets for many decades before the moon landing. When Kennedy gave the moon landing speech, he wasn't saying, let's do this impossible task. He was saying, look, we can do it. We've launched rockets. If we don't do this, somebody else will get there first. And moonshot has gone almost into the opposite parlance. It's almost like rather than saying, here's something big we could do and we know how to do it. It's like, here's some crazy thing. If Let's throw a lot of resources at it and let's hope for the best. And I worry that there's that's kind of not how moonshot should be used. So I think we should do anti-moonshots.